The Start On Demand. On demand. Could you survive in the cold for 52 hours? A Manitoba man had to after he put his plane down in the wilderness and couldn't get it started again. The saga continues for the Donald. We'll check in with Global's Reggie Cicchini in Washington with the latest developments in that soap opera. The Winnipeg Jets are killing it lately. We'll break down their latest triumph over a heated rival. And cold enough for you? Stay warm out there. At least it's a dry cold. Which cold weather cliche do you hate the most? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Friday, January 18th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Loren, he was forced to camp in a bush for two days and two nights. Yeah, and could you do that I, I, without any uh, preparedness? That's exactly what an Asher pilot had to endure 52 hours in the bush, but is just thankful to be alive. Happy Benaric was stranded Sunday night after his plane wouldn't start following a pit stop on Pickerel Lake in central Manitoba. As Global's Amber McGookin explains, the 71-year-old actually waited an entire night before activating an emergency alert. I'm very fortunate, yes. People call him Hap, short for Happy Bidneric, and he has plenty of reasons to live up to that name today. I feel pretty good being able to be here. On Saturday afternoon, Hap was taking his plane to meet friends on Sissip Lake, but he was early and decided to stop on Pickerel Lake to go to the bathroom. 20 minutes later, and the plane's engine refused to fire up. It hiccuped a couple of times, just about caught, but it didn't go. The 71-year-old pilot got busy building a fire to keep warm, but he waited until the next morning to send an emergency alert from his plane because he didn't want to be a bother. You know, you activate that ELT and you call Mayday, well then it's a, it's a major deal going on or operation. And, and uh, I, in hindsight, I wished I would have activated it right away. But, you know, us old guys, we kind of didn't want to stir up a bunch of stuff. He survived on a bag of trail mix and hoped that someone would find him. A Hercules search and rescue plane from CFB Trenton spotted his fire, but search and rescue technicians couldn't parachute in because of bad weather. He was rescued by RCMP members on Monday afternoon after 52 hours stranded alone. All of a sudden I heard voices and here comes these two guys with the flashlights. That's the nicest sight I've ever seen in my life. A truly happy ending to a dangerous ordeal. Amber McGookin, Global News. What I want to know, is this guy happy, this calm all the time, Mm -hmm. and was he this cool, calm, and collected the entire time he was on the ground making this, you know, pit stop? Sounds like he's unflappable to me. Well, we're going to try to play a clip later about what his reaction was when the search and rescue crew finally got there. But it had me thinking this morning about, okay, so I don't fly a plane, but I've been on a lot of planes to the north. And I certainly do a lot of travel in the winter on the roads. And if I found myself or our family in that situation, do I have any of the tools to last an hour, let alone... 52 hours or 51 plus hours as he did. And uh, we spoke just a short time ago to uh, Dave McDonald. He runs the Canadian School of Survival. And he basically, he used to be one of those search and rescue guys. And so he's got lots of experience on how to track them down. And then has since gone on to teach courses and answered some of my questions about, okay, well, what do we need to do here? The 
worst attitude you could take on is that can't happen to me or that won't happen to me. And then when it does, you're totally unexpected. It's totally unexpected. You're caught, you know, not being prepared. You know, there's not a large part of the population that might be flying their own plane, but there are a lot of people who take flights up north, and there's also yes, just lots yes, of people on, on the road. They travel by ice road, too, and vehicles, and even the Trans-Canada in the winter. You know, if you get a bad winter storm, you could be cut off for, you know, a day or two, possibly. Yeah, we've heard stories like that. Uh, just last year, I think last winter, somebody spent a couple, at least 24 hours uh, in a snowbank, so to speak, in, in their vehicle after a terrible storm. If I'm hearing this, what's, what? give me some tips to be prepared for a potential of having to spend a few hours or even a night or two. In okay, a if the, the best preparation I found is knowledge and experience. The military and survival is the same way. Uh, they teach a pattern. It goes first aid, fire, shelter, signals, water, food. You manipulate the pattern to suit the environment. Which means I deal with any injuries first. Yeah, or the environment possibly too, right? Maybe you can't, maybe it's minus 20, 20 kilometer an hour winds. You fell off the skidoo on the lake and there's a fractured femur. You can't take care of that fracture really until you get them to shelter. Because as soon as you expose your hands under those conditions or you start exposing their injury under those conditions, you're threatening their life, right? With the environment's threatening their life. So after you deal with that first aid, then what, what, what's the next step? Then you get a fire going possibly if it's boreal forest or you're going to have to get into shelter if it's above the tree line and try and, you know, heat it at least somewhat or pull people into it. And then, uh, then you get signals as well. So if you signal for help and you get them out early, um, which he had an ELT probably, and plus he had a trip uh, a note, so he, people would have known where he was going, what he was doing, so it makes it easier to find you. All those things, like if you think about what's in your car alone, let alone the ski pants or the mitts or the toque, do you have a blanket? Do you have food? Do you have fluid? Do you have a thing to light a fire if it's going to keep warm? I mean, I don't, I honestly am feeling horrific now about the lack of preparedness I have. Well, I'm just thinking about the time that I spent in Western Manitoba and Loren, I'm, I'm guessing that you did this once upon a time. If you're on Highway 16, maybe you're in Minidosa and you're going to Regina, well, the quickest way isn't to go to Brandon on Highway 10 and hook up with one number one. It's to kind of go cross country mm-hmm. and to hit up, hit Highway 83 and go down 83 or or a similar uh, north-south route and hit Highway number one just because of the way the Trans-Canada dips down west of Brandon. Anyway, I know that heading to British Columbia once, I was in a snowstorm and I still, for whatever reason, took that route and I also remember knowing and recall now, I never told my dad that that was the way I was going. He would have assumed that I was going the Brandon way. Okay, so that's part of his next piece of advice. I want to play you the next clip from Dave McDonald, who uh, works uh, runs the Canadian School of Survival uh, Techniques, and, and about uh, whether we all really have what it takes to do what this pilot did. How often do you think people are packing those items? Do you think the majority of Manitobans are prepared for that eventuality? Uh, majority, no. No, if they're not a... If, if they're not a smoker, chances are they're not carrying a lighter unless they've got a lot of experience or some experience in the bush and they know enough to carry a, a lighter. Um, so most people don't carry matches or a lighter anyway uh, to start a fire. I know if I bust down or break down with my vehicle on the ice roads and the winter roads, that I can move off into the bush and live quite nicely with a tarp, a blanket, and a way to get a fire going. If you hear anything out of this pilot story, it's perhaps food for thought to answer the question, could you do that? And if not, how could you prepare better for, the, for that possibility? 
you know, he had his plane out there. Uh, he got a fire going. He probably had tea on when the guys parachuted in to help him. <laughs> Those guys are leaving their families and parachuting in in the middle of the wilderness. You better have tea going for him when they get there. I don't know if he had tea going for him, Brett, but his two pieces of advice were, were good. It was first aid. Bring it, Have a first aid kit in your vehicle because you never know what's going to happen. Have something to keep you warm. And the easiest and the thing that he mentioned there that is probably most forgotten by folks, if you're not a smoker, you don't, no one's carrying a lighter. And therefore, how are you ever going to, oh, I'd start a fire with what? Yeah. Yeah. You're not rubbing two sticks together. I guarantee you that. Not you think cold, you will. You're not, you're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Who mentioned something about a kettle? I know I heard something about a kettle on the air with one of our guests either yesterday or earlier. And so many cars now, if you've got a modern car, you most likely have an actual power receptacle somewhere in your car. I'm guessing that a kettle would be a powerful really? tool to have. Could you plug that in, you think, to the... Well, if you're running your car, absolutely, absolutely you can. I've got I've got at least two of them in my vehicle where I can plug in whatever I want. If I want to put a TV in the backseat of the car for the, for the Rugrats, I can do that. Like actual outlets? Correct. Holy smokes, yeah. I didn't know that was yeah, a Lots thing. of SUVs will have those for sure. Hmm. I don't know about cars, but I have, like I say, at least two of them in my vehicle. Wow, that's outstanding. And uh, Happy, the pilot, just wanted to play this clip for you where he describes how it felt when he knew rescue was impending. It was midnight on Sunday that the hurt came over. They circled for about two hours. I had a fire going and I threw av gas on it and that flared up and they were able to see that there was somebody moving around down there. So that made them feel pretty good. But it never made them feel as good as it made me feel when I heard the sound of them engines on that Herc coming. But they couldn't send anybody out of the airplane because the weather was so bad. There was only a 400-foot ceiling. So they were running low on fuel. They went back to Winnipeg and fueled up that Herc, and they came back again. And at 4 o'clock in the morning, or around 4, 4.30, something like that, the guys, the two Sartec guys who are God as far as I'm concerned, they jumped out at 3,400 feet, went through 2,000 feet of cloud, and uh, all of a sudden I hear voices, and they walked up to me. That is, once again, is Happy Benaric, the 71-year-old pilot from Manitoba who got stranded in the wilderness for 52 hours, but he's okay. Yeah, the Jets putting the boots scooting boogie to the Predators. That's what's beautiful. Quite the 51 hours or so for the Winnipeg Jets. On Tuesday, I'll remind you, we'll walk down memory lane. Come with me. On Tuesday, the Jets crafted a 4-1 win over Pacific Division nemesis Vegas Golden Knights on the strength of a record-setting goaltending performance from their backup goaltender. Some people saying maybe he should be playing more. Loren Brossois. 26 saves in a single period, by the way, was the team record that he broke. Two beautiful goals, a shorthanded goal from Kyle Connor and that highlight reel-worthy goal from veteran forward and spark plug Matthew Perot. You were talking about cliches as it pertains to the weather, Brett. Well, sports is where cliches were born. Two at play here. You're only as good as your last game, and that or this was the biggest game of the season until the next one. Well, the next one 
as it pertains to Tuesday night, was last night versus the Nashville Predators in Music City. Jets went into last night's game two points ahead of the Predators for first place in the Central with two games in hand. The Jets showed off their depth as the fourth line scored three of their five goals and Connor Hellebuck reminded himself, Brossois and Jets fans who the Vesna Trophy finalist was last season in a 5-1 statement victory in Bridgestone Library, I, I mean arena. Yeah, I like this rink too. Um, good memories here too. Uh, something about this place just it just suits my style, I guess. Um, yeah, I was excited. I was excited to play tonight, and I think it showed. With the Jets' dads in, intent, in attendance, it's their annual father's trip. And, Loren, we were talking about this yesterday. A lot of the NHL teams are doing mom trips I now. was just going to ask, do the Jets have one? I'm curious to know. Well, I'm going to try and find out. To this point in their history, they've never done one. But they're doing the dad's trip this weekend. And uh, included in the dads is former NHL agitator Claude Lemieux, father of Brendan, who scored twice last night, and fellow Fourth liner Mason Appleton added another. Here's Lemieux. Any night, you know, your fourth line can produce. Uh, it's important. And, you know, I thought even our third line and our second line were really good tonight. And so um, it's not just about, you know, our line, but it was a good game for us. Now the Jets actually put six pucks past Nashville goaltender Pekka Rene. I don't know if you were up for this one, Loren. The Jets no. scored on a power play. Per- I did the first period, and then I was like, I feel like they've got this. Right. Well, they scored a power play goal. Blake Wheeler called back. They reviewed it by replay, those annoying replays where it's like by like the hair of your teeth or the skin of your teeth. Yeah, maybe an inch or less Mark Shifley's skate ahead of the play. Paul Maurice highlighted the contributions of the fourth line, as well as rookie Sammy Niku and seventh defenseman Joe Morrow, who has been pressed into duty with injuries to Dustin Bufflin and Ben Sherratt. Here's the coach. Their play has improved, uh, and the wingers have done a nice job, but Andrew Kopp going back to the middle has made a big, big difference. So they... Uh, I don't pull them on the ice when, when Johansson comes out and they end up scoring a goal. So good for them. They've earned that extra ice and that trust. And the bench is uh, it's just way more positive, right? you got another three more guys in the bench feeling like they're a part of it. They're talking and it brings more energy. Pretty big contribution from Nico and Morrow as well. Right. Like that that part of, of the group you know, was instrumental in us winning. It's, it's funny because the Shifley line, I thought, played a fantastic game, had no points. Um, and, and those other guys on nights like that, it's, it's not that Mark's line wasn't good, they were great but on nights that they get shut out you, you got to get the other guys to go to score to win My kids actually, so I did see that I realize now that was in the first period and my kids comments were like well it doesn't matter if they, he was offside it made no difference on the fact that they were able to score that goal, which is true but it also, it was offside I like the, the take that your kids have <laughs> It's that. true. Genuinely, it, it, didn't, it didn't impact. It, that right. made no difference in the fact that they scored that goal. However, a rule is a rule. We all remember the Stanley Cup final, 1999, I believe it was, when Brett Hall oh, yeah. scored the overtime winning goal against Buffalo. And all season long, they've been playing, calling this rule that if your skate was in the crease, there'd he be no it, goal. It felt like he, the question was about whether he kicked it, was it? Or is it just that his skate, skate was in the, in the crease? crease and had been getting called all year. They overlooked it and allowed it in the Stanley Cup final. And I'm concerned one of these nitpicky offside calls, 12, 15, 27 seconds before an actual goal is scored, is going to cost somebody a playoff game or worse. So 
Here we are this morning. The Jets find themselves in first place. Tented to use the word comfortably, but there is no such thing, Brett McGarry, when it comes to sport. Four points ahead of Nashville for the fir- for first in the Central. They've won four games in a row, six of their last seven, and head to Dallas Saturday night before eight days off leading up to the All-Star Game next weekend in San Jose. And, of course, Paul Maurice will be the coach of the Central, and Mark Scheifele and Blake Wheeler will attend as players. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. It is cold. We have an extreme cold warning in effect pretty much for almost all of Manitoba, save for the southwest corner. So we thought we'd have a conversation about cliches, catchphrases, and conversations that we end up inevitably hearing whenever it gets this cold. And Greg, you mentioned that your buddy Scott Moreland, Winnipeg's buddy Scott Moreland, who was in from San Diego, says... I mean, we all end up talking about weather here in Winnipeg because it's really the one thing that unites us all. San Diego has basically the most perfect climate in North America. It is ranked number one with 261 pleasant days defined as having an average temperature between 55 to 75 degrees. So, yes, it has the best, best weather in the United States. And so I asked Scott, what do you guys talk about when you're on the elevator or to make small talk? He says, we talk about the zoo. <laughs> that's funny like what like oh man how about them elephants that, that elephant zoo? is really killing yeah, it these yeah, days yeah. now the chargers have left you know they've got a very mediocre baseball team and uh the zoo so that's a great place though looking forward to, to heading down there i want to start with jeff Braun because uh jeff does not suffer fools so you must love all the cold weather cliches that come about at this time of year Oh, I got to turn your microphone on. Yeah, I like it only because it gives me something to talk to people about. Usually I'm stuck with a cashier and it's like, well, what am I supposed to say? And if it's cold, at least, oh, I can talk about how cold it is. Oh, yeah. so you spark so the you, conversation. So you like it. I don't spark the conversation. I, I First of all, I, I scan the cashiers and look for the grumpiest one because I'm like, they're not going to want to talk to me at all. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so warm and inviting, Jeff. And he's in radio. Oh, boy. Yeah, um, but they're not paying me while I'm buying groceries, all right? Get paid to talk. So Don't do it for free. Yeah, so we, we, we had a, well, that happened to me yesterday. I was at the grocery store, and the conversation about the weather, it I wasn't feel, just a passing comment. It was the, the entire exchange, just more comment about weather, weather, weather. And I thought... Feel bad you know, for them. I've sort of run out of small talk on this yeah. one. I can't. I can't carry a conversation on the weather for five minutes. So, yeah. But uh, McNabb, I know that your favorite uh, cliche is, "Well, uh, hey, at least it's a uh, dry cold." Yeah, I hate that one. You and threatened I, violence this morning. I did on threaten her. violence. Did. I think I threatened a throat punch on Kelly Moore, which yeah. I kind of feel bad about, but not really. No, that's it, a very specific threat. It was I always worry about the specific <laughs> threats. It wasn't just that I'm going to hurt you. It was very, very, yes. very pointed. But it's because like I spent four years in Ottawa I spent about four or five years in Toronto where it is more damp you have different kinds of cold and cold is cold like it's not like heat in my mind like a humidity versus a dry heat like once you get to a certain temperature and you get that inside of your body is freezing then I just don't care I don't want to hear it because I'm cold there might be a scientific difference but I don't want to I don't want to know about it but uh, the road trips that I made into Montreal in the winter time when I was doing hockey there is a difference to the cold in that city. Mm-hmm. It goes right through you. So you would take this over that? 
I would, yeah. But however, I would take that over this if it was uh, you know a windy day here with with the cold that we're going through because nothing's worse than that minus thirty with a minus forty wind chill. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Like you go yeah. outside right now and you have your gloves off and you touch some metal or you even just r- rush to the door. Like you're feeling it so instantly. Whereas that damn cold, I get it. It feels terrible once you've been out yeah. in it for a little bit, but it's not like slapping you in the face as soon as you step oh, out the but door. It, it, it's hard to warm up from afterwards. Although today I noticed walking across the parking lot. I don't know what it was like for the rest of you guys, but like the cold actually went through my toque. My mm-hmm. my ears were freezing mm-hmm. even with a toque on them. Okay. Three layers. I had the toque, my hoodie hood, and then my jacket hood. What's a hoodie hood? Oh, my God. <laughs> the, hood oh, on the, my hoodie. the hood on your hoodie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry? That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, because I find that it, when it does get this cold, because it's dry, I, I as long as I'm layered up, I'm okay. The damp cold, yeah, that that is tough. And even, you, you notice it here sometimes, like I... I in recent weeks where it's been milder, mm-hmm. it's still that damp. And I just remember, you know, after an hour even of being home, I'm still sort of not shivering, but I can feel it like residual cold in my bones. You know what? The day we did fill the freight liner down at uh, Boston Pizza, yeah. it was one of those kind of days where it was a little foggy in that. And it was a real uncomfortable cold that day. So that's uh, that's the one I remember with what you just described there. Yeah, that was yeah. a perfect example. Greg? I always relate it back to hockey and growing up in Brandon and, and just about how cold it could be outside. And my dad would forget to bring my hockey equipment in the house. And so my skates would have been in the trunk <laughs> oh. for three days. And the goalie pads were in the trunk for two or three days. And then we'd go and play in the barn, right. barn three, the UCT arena. Arena is a very loose term here, okay? <laughs> it's basically a shell that I've protects you there, from yeah. the wind. Yeah. If it's minus 30 outside, it's potentially minus 35 inside. Yeah. And that's the coldest I've ever been was refereeing a hockey tournament there. They wouldn't even let us do all three periods. We had to work in shifts because it was so cold. You couldn't sign the game sheet, etc. So that's a story I tell, you know, anybody to try and get an idea of how cold it can be in Manitoba when I lived out west. But I would always defend it on the other side and say, as an adult, the coldest I've ever been was in Seattle at a football game when it was raining. It was plus one. And I was at the 1991 Grey Cup. Minus 20 and sunny is awesome. you got to come and experience it. These things that we tell ourselves to feel better about the cold and and. How it feels here. I like bragging about it on vacation. Like how tough you are? Yeah, like uh, our family went on a cruise a few Christmases ago and uh, flew to, that time flew to Tampa, get off the plane, ran outside, uh, still a smoker at the time, ran outside to have a smoke. This other lady comes running outside to have a smoke and she's like, oh, it's so much nicer here. She's like, I'm from Chicago. And I just said, I'm from Winnipeg. And she goes, you win. <laughs> and then it was just silence after that, just yep. angry silence. I remember. That's good. It's funny you mentioned uh, Tampa because I, a situation where I went down to Orlando for the first time, I was 12 or 13 years old, and it was December, and that was back when we still measured the wind chill in like 2,400. We left that day, it was minus... 30, the wind chill was 2400, it was just brutal. So we were all in parkas and whatnot. We get there, t shirt and shorts because it was 17 or 18 degrees. But there are people walking around in sweaters mm-hmm. and they oh, said, yeah. they said, Oh, I us, had that same experience. Uh, Did you 14? In, yeah, in Orlando as well. 
And uh, I remember uh, we we had a, it was one of my mom's old workhouses, and uh, we were there, and there was a pool, and we're all swinging the pool, and behind the, the backyard is a golf course, and the guy is on his lawnmower, driving the lawnmower on the golf course, and he's wearing a parka, <laughs> and we're, we're in the pool swimming. <laughs> In a moment, we're going to talk about a couple of Manitoba women who were forced to read their online threats in front of a group of elders. But I just want to read a text message relating to our previous conversation about all the cliches and catchphrases we inevitably hear when it's cold, this cold. And this listener texts us at 204-780-6868. I don't drive and never have. But in the winter, I head out early to start the car for the missus. We still start ours the up and close, up close and personal way. I unplug it, start it, and scrape the windows. Then I sit in it for the next 20 minutes or so, waiting for the missus to join me. The frosty air puts me right to sleep. But by the time we're ready to roll, the car is warm. Notably, she gets to go from the cold morning air into a cozy prepped car, and I've managed to sneak in a satisfying nap. I prefer the cold over the heat, and I know I'm... Of a minority for it, I can nearly guarantee on cold days like this that I'll get at least one unprepared-looking chucklehead who will offer up a cliche, cold enough for you? I hate that. <laughs> we had another texter say, I hate the cold enough for you uh, response or opening salutation. It, uh, it, yeah, no, it's not. Like, what are you supposed to say that, to that? When you say opening salutation, you nailed it. It replaces like, hey, how's it going with cold enough for you? As soon as you walk in any store, any like receptionist, right? Like, And I get it, trying to relate to each other. But yes, no, it's not cold enough for me. I want it colder. And then for, for a closing uh, parting shot, as it were, and I, I the, stay warm. But stay I'm warm. I'm totally guilty of it. Oh, our, yeah. our electri- uh, an electrician was in my apartment uh, yesterday, fixing something on the stove, and as he left, I said, "Stay warm." And then I, I immediately thought, "Why did you say that, you stupid <laughs> idiot?" Like I almost it's choked back on response. It. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's this default thing that we fall into when it gets this cold. There's actually a saying that I read uh, online this morning where someone was like, "Don't knock the weather." Nine tenths of people could start a conversation if it didn't change once in a while because it's true. If you remove that we'd be talking about the zoo like san diego <laughs> so how about that journey to churchill <laughs> oh man that was deer we're really up to no good at assiniboine park this morning yeah, yeah, yeah that's where yeah, it would go yeah well well hey uh how about them jets that's how i started my conversation with uh, philly and joe and kirby this morning over at power 97 when i pop in for my morning visit with them and i, I like starting a conversation with that jets pistol hot right now yeah, that's, that's a, another one, I suppose. Hey, uh, we've been talking a lot this week about online threats after that situation at Arthur Day Middle School. But this is an interesting twist as far as consequences go, right, Lauren? Well, we've heard the phrase before, don't say anything online that you wouldn't say in person. And now that's the lesson that uh, two Manitoba women have, I hope, learned this week when they were asked to read what they had written about Indigenous people to a room full of elders and chiefs. So the two women are from Flin Flon, and they were arrested last year over online comments that threatened violence against Indigenous peoples. Some of the comments proposed a, quote, shoot an Indian day, while another reply suggested a 24-hour purge, and then a line about grabbing some beers and some shotguns. 
While those comments were quickly condemned by many, they also led to a police investigation, which then went to Manitoba Justice. And the prosecution office then referred that case to the Restorative Justice Centre. And what they suggested was kind of neat, in my opinion. Instead of fines or further punishment, the women were asked this week on Wednesday to read what they had written to 20 elders and chiefs. And then that group then got to share their thoughts on how hurtful the comments had been and whether that helped them or not. Here's Opaskwayak Cree Nation Chief Christian Sinclair on what that moment meant. And there was a lot of ugly words and uh, things said, but you can also hear in their voice the, uh, the shame and the uh, remorse that uh, they had because now they're having to say publicly rather than behind a computer screen. So there were also a few people that questioned, shouldn't there still be charges from that in in that group? But uh, Canadian press reporter Steve Lambert is one who put that together. He was told that the mediation circle is part of a a justice approach within the Indigenous community that focuses on some healing rather than punishment. And and in this case, maybe might have made a bigger difference. Well, restorative justice, isn't that really what we're talking about here? Uh, There's no fine paid. There's no money exchanging hands there was no graffiti to clean up but those individuals had to stand before the group of people they were casting malicious aspersions towards and had an opportunity to see how it felt to be in the room when their words were read and heard and i don't know if that was the first time that these women had ever done anything like this i say this is a perfect way to uh, try and set things right. If they do it again, then I'm open to some charges. But if the if the First Nations and the Indigenous communities are cool with this, I'm very cool with it. Yeah, I think this is great uh, because it would be so difficult to have to stand there and read those awful things that you wrote because I think we've all said awful things behind closed doors or maybe we've said things online that we definitely wouldn't say in person. And when you get called out for it, like, let's say you think you're behind closed doors or you say, just say you're saying something bad about someone, you know, who you don't, you think is not within earshot. Turns out they are and you immediately feel awful for it. Right. So to have to then stand in front of this group and read it, uh, that would just be super you, awkward for one is an understatement. You try to say to your kids, too, and you always think about like, OK, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. It used to be repeated when I was growing up. And now now the question is, would you say that to their face? Like, would you say that to them in person? And and beyond just the online thing, that should be the truth for everything. If you wouldn't have the courage to say that to them directly, then talking behind their back or online is, is doesn't make sense. I was going to ask you, do your kids mutter yet? Like under their breath? Mm-hmm. No, not yet. Well, but I'm, I when, guess that's when coming. When they start, I call my kids on that. What are you muttering about down there? Because I can hear them when I've asked them to do something or reminded them that something needs to be done, whether it be their homework or their chores, and I'll hear them muttering. And I'm like, I want to know what you said. And I'll force them to say it. Stupid daddy. <laughs> take this oh. vacuum and shove it. Yeah. Say it to my face now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, but it's a huge difference. Silence. Right? That's a great lesson. If they can't look you in an eye and repeat those comments, that's you a good betcha, lesson, man. Dad. Good you job. Betcha. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you so much for joining us on a Friday morning. And this is Ariana Grande breathing, if I am correct, Forte. Is that right? Yeah, it's in our music bed folder. Did so. you just know that? Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't I even like know that. Song. I didn't know that uh, at first uh, when I first listened to it off air. I like this song, and I know that Greg, you are always sort of.
breathing very heavily whenever the subject of Donald Trump comes up because yep. you get mad. No question Greg about smash. it. No question about it. Uh, Reggie Cicchini <laughs> joining us from Washington this morning. And Reggie, I'm inclined to just use two words and let you fill in the blanks. Uh, let's see how this works. BuzzFeed. They're not just cat videos anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. What is BuzzFeed saying in the last, oh, 12, 15 hours here, Reggie? Well, I mean, BuzzFeed is kind of picking up on reporting that they had put out last year where they had kind of blown up a whole story about how Michael Cohen and people inside the Trump organization were having conversations with Russian officials about Trump building a tower in Moscow during the campaign uh, heading into the primaries a couple of years ago. So that's what the original story was. They're coming out now by saying uh, we've actually spoken with two investigators that say as a part of this reporting that's already been out there, the president actually directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress when it came to those conversations that were happening between the Trump organization and officials in Russia. So what we have now is a potential for the president to have uh, committed some kind of obstruction of justice by telling somebody to lie to Congress. What has the reaction been there to that? Has the president commented on any of it? No, the president has not commented on this as of yet. I mean, it broke overnight. He's only put out a couple of tweets in the last 12 hours. Nothing to do with this. Uh, but Democrats are quickly pouncing on this. Uh, Adam Schiff, a number of people inside uh, inside Congress, a number of senators have come out to say, look, if this turns out to be the big story that it actually is, we need to investigate this strongly. And we they're actually throwing that I word around where they're saying this could be possible terms for impeachment. Uh, Reggie, in the uh, the Senate uh, confirmation hearings for the new attorney general, this obstruction of justice... Uh, I guess the definition has been really been at the heart of at least two different senators inquisition and questions, one Republican and one Democrat. Absolutely. It was Lindsey Graham and Amy Klobuchar who both looked at William Barr and said if the president had directed somebody to, uh, you know, commit perjury and, and lie, would that be obstruction of justice? And William Barr said, absolutely. That's a textbook definition of obstruction. So the president's own personal pick for somebody to take the place of Jeff Sessions might actually become the president's own worst enemy inside the Justice Department because any kind of big proceeding or any kind of big legal action is going to have to work its way through there. And he's now on the record saying if the president did this, it is obstruction. That all has the potential to turn very serious on a less serious note. One of the headlines that caught my eye in CNN this morning was more an analysis piece, and it talked about a childish spat between Trump and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and saying that the longest government shutdown in history just reached the throwing the toys out of the stroller stage, which is a funny line, but it kind of feels like it is a pretty childish spat over whether or not he's going to give her this plane to go to Afghanistan. Absolutely. It's kind of this tit-for-tat moment right now. It's schoolyard antics. But there is kind of a grander scale to this. I mean, the basics of this story are simply that the, uh, the the House Speaker was trying to go overseas with a congressional delegation. They were going to stop in Brussels to have discussions about NATO in case the president had abruptly decided to pull America out uh, and then make a stop in Afghanistan to thank servicemen for their uh, work that they're doing over there, somewhere the president hasn't gone just as of yet. Uh, the problem is, is that because the Speaker has kind of disinvited or at least told the president to postpone the State of the Union because of the government shutdown, people are seeing this now as the president's saying, well, look, you denied me a platform to speak. I'm going to deny you, uh, you know, air transit to get over there. Uh, but the other bigger portion of the story is that the president had kind of publicly stated that the House Speaker was going to be heading to a war zone in Afghanistan. And you have to remember, she's third in line for the presidency. So to put that out there is a big security risk when he says to her, go and fly commercial to get over there. Obviously, that can't happen. Second to note, though, that these kind of trips take weeks and weeks of planning. So there was no way to know that the government shutdown would, A, continue to be like this or, or might have been open. So it's not like 
like she had decided to do this on a whim. This was planning. That's why people are saying this is kind of a tit-for-tat moment. More more than that, if you go to Afghanistan, and it might have changed in recent years, but I think you can only get a commercial flight to the capital, and the rest is kind of military or driving. I mean, you really are putting somebody at serious risk if they're going outside the capital region. Absolutely. And that's why people are saying, look, you can't just announce this. You know, the president kind of made a gaffe when he went overseas over the Christmas uh, period and he went to Iraq and he kind of made it a political show. But he was tweeting pictures of of service members and and agents who shouldn't be identified. So the president may not understand the full uh, magnitude of what happens when you make an announcement like this, that either the president or somebody in line to be the president is heading into an active war zone. There's only damaging things that can happen from that. Reggie, circling back to the BuzzFeed article, I just want to bounce a text message that we got off you here. Tyson texting us at 204-780-6868 saying, BuzzFeed? Taking it down a notch, eh? What's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, BuzzFeed News, they've, they've kind of been really wading into the political waters over the last couple of years. you got to remember that the Steele dossier that came out with all these salacious uh, you know, activities and, and kind of a look inti- inside the, the president's life and world, they're the ones who kind of broke that. And they've been on the forefront of this investigative journalism trying to kind of show another side of what's happening inside the White House. For, for BuzzFeed to come out and say, and just, just within the last hour or so, one of the people who have a byline on that story was on CNN saying, look, this story is 100 percent. I'm putting myself on the line. I'm putting my chops on the line. Nothing in this story is wrong, and it goes beyond the two people who we haven't named in this story. So BuzzFeed's out there right now. It's been hard for other uh, networks to kind of corroborate what they're saying, but for the most part, I mean, BuzzFeed's kind of doing uh, some good right now when it comes to you know journalistic uh, uh, work around the, the president. Well, I mean, let's take a look at TMZ. People slam them all the time, but if not for TMZ, a video of two of the most serious assault cases involving NFL players never would have come to light. The NFL, uh, the accusation that they weren't looking very hard for this video. TMZ comes in. So there are these outlets that are maybe more well-known for other things. They are capable of bringing news to light that, that needs to be heard and seen. Absolutely. I mean, these are networks, somebody like TMZ or somebody like BuzzFeed, they have a really big social media presence. So it's not kind of like your standard news outlet that might have, you know, a Twitter site and you watch them on TV and you read the newspaper. These these are networks and these are these are uh, kind of, uh, you know, becoming new journalistic places to go to where they have a large following. They've got the ability to kind of get a big mass me- uh, message out there. They're good with video. They're good with getting it tight down to the time. So people are actually looking at these and saying, look, these are reputable now. These are where big stories are breaking. And then the bigger networks are now kind of latching onto that, saying we can report on what BuzzFeed is saying. All right, Reggie Giacchini joining us live from Washington. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. It is 7.56 on 680 CJOB. Coming up at 8.45, hockey, not the only ice sport that's rocking Vegas this week. I love the way you say ice sport. I don't know why. It's like a, just a note of sarcasm. Yeah, well, it's it's like ice hockey. Like yeah. when I say ice hockey, or sportsing. Right, yeah, the sportsing. You know, the, the Nintendo game, the original hockey game on Nintendo, yeah. is called ice, ice hockey. hockey. No, you're right, absolutely. I don't know why, but there's something about when you say it. I think even Kirk Penton, when who writes for the Athletic, we had him on the other day, and, and did he not say what did you just say, sportsing? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it is the International Ice Hockey Federation. For sure. So, Brett. Not the National Ice Don't Hockey stop. League, though. Just uh, National I'm Hockey like League. Unlike Loren, I like what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. I like what, what he's doing. doing. And well, I like that you still have no cars good. in your garage. All these things are great things about you two. Turn off her microphone, please. <laughs> For the record, it's the North American Ice Hockey League. Uh, Jeff Is Braun. it really? No, it's not. Oh. Jeff Braun is global. I was like, have I been 
wrong for 40 plus years? Brett's world. Brett's world. Okay. The postseason is called the North American Ice Hockey League Championship. So just make sure you remember that. Come, Got it. Uh, May and Come June. May and June. I'm yeah. on it. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this Friday morning. Or should I say, hello, it's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Thank you very much for joining us today on The Start. This is the radio show where nothing much happens, and it's good. Whoa, whoa, I just pressed play (laughs) on my iPhone because you said you wanted to record some of this and that you'd forgotten, and and then you said that, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's really loud. (laughs) I thought this was, I thought it was her. Well, play it. Do you have it there? Is it going? Network. Greg's holding his this phone up to the mic. Is that working? Season two, but I have some very good news. Once did an interview to Brazil like that. Because we couldn't That's get right. a line. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, we did a Facebook Live and Greg had to hold his phone up to the microphone. Uh, it worked actually surprisingly, shockingly well. Shockingly in fact. well. Anyway, just we had a mood set there and I completely disrupted it. I apologize. Why are we all speaking like this? Uh, because of the Nothing Much Happens podcast, bedtime stories for grown-ups. We've been talking about sleep all week. It started with Loren telling us how she got no sleep Sunday night, and Monday night she tried the podcast, and it worked a lot better. Greg, I know you've been listening to it. I almost pulled it out the other day because I had a hard time sleeping, but usually I'm out cold within five minutes. But if I ever have issues, I will turn to... Nothing much happens, and we're joined by Catherine, who is the host of the podcast. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, guys. How are you? I hope you know that I. it is the utmost of compliment to you that I love your voice, I love your slow read, and I particularly love it when you do tell me a story that I don't care about. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear it. I'm happy to bore people to tears, or more likely to Z's. <laughs> yeah, we were joking earlier this week that it wouldn't be a compliment in most circumstances to be a host right. of a show where you you wanted to not catch the entire episode. But you do start <laughs> each podcast out saying that you have a goal. You're going to read two. Right. You're going to read a story. You're going to read it twice. The second time might be a little slowly, but at the end. You probably won't even get to the end. Yeah. What is it behind these stories that you write yourself that have that effect on lulling people to sleep? There's a couple different factors. Definitely my voice and my pace is a factor. I am a yoga teacher, so I've been trained for a long time how to use my voice to help people find relaxation. But then the stories themselves are built around really kind of relaxing, comforting details that the mind can just kind of rest on without really having to keep track of. I think it's essential, the part that you said that I kind of let people know nothing much is going to happen, and I'm going to read the story twice, and it lets people relax a little bit and know, hey, I don't have to I don't have to keep track of, there's no characters, you know, there's nothing to find out what's going to happen in the end. Nothing's going to happen, um, except for that you're going to get a great night's sleep. But it's counterintuitive to me, because when Greg mentioned the podcast and reminded me that I should give it a shot, uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm a person that can't handle any noise while I'm sleeping, mm-hmm. like I might like a white noise or a fan, yeah. but if I hear even a little bit of from the kids, if the TV's on in the living room, if a game is being played, I can't fall asleep. And yet there I am listening to a, an entire story being told right next to my ear and not having uh-huh. any issues in, with that. So what's the difference? 
I don't know if we're tapping into something that we got trained in as child at, in childhood of being read to in order to fall asleep. I think there's a little bit of that. And then I think that I've kind of tucked into a sweet spot where when you hear the voice, you know, it's not the news, you know, it's not TV or something like that. It sounds different and it allows you just to relax and fall asleep. Catherine, we're, we're sort of programmed to, to mirror those that we're in a relationship with or an interaction mm-hmm. with. And yeah. that was highlighted for me yesterday. I was shooting a television commercial and mm-hmm. the person that I'm in the commercial with was losing her voice. So oh. she said, you know, when you do your lines, I'm just going to whisper. They were doing a close up. Oh. And so I'm just mm-hmm. going to whisper. And immediately I fell into this sort of mode where I was not expressing myself vocally the way I had been for the first three or four takes, which were both of us speaking in our normal voice. I was mirroring her. It took me two or three takes. And then she said, you know what, Greg, I'm just going to use my normal voice (laughs) so that we can interact the way we were previously. And we nailed it. Yeah. That's interesting. Those are those mirroring neurons in your amygdala, right? That make you, and I notice that when people come into, I own a yoga studio and people come into the front desk, sometimes their energy is like really high and they're talking really loud because they just got off the phone and then they get up to the front desk and I say, hey, how's it going? And they immediately sort of turn it down too. So I think there is something in that. What's the science behind getting to the deepest part of your sleep, which we know is so important to do to have those cycles come in. And one of the big worries is that when I get up at three in the morning, I I've read that that's the time when we're all supposed to be in our deepest sleep. And what I've noticed from your podcast that if I don't fall asleep right away, what what has been super beneficial is the fact that I don't wake up again until my alarm goes off. What difference can that make in a person's uh, ability with their energy levels throughout the day if they're able to get that full sleep without any interruptions. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a huge difference, right? Sleep affects everything. So being able to have a full night's sleep, or even if you do wake up, if it's just momentary and you go right back to sleep, you'll be able to get right back into those cycles. The things that really interrupt us is when we wake up at one o'clock in the morning and the brain is allowed to turn all the way back on. And then we're up for, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, and we feel agitated. And then we still start to feel panicky about the fact that we're not sleeping. And it just becomes like this cycle that it's really hard to shake. Um, Then you're probably going to have problems with your short-term memory that day, your cognition. They even show things that people who don't get their full night's sleep eat about an extra 600 or 700 calories a day, which really can add up after a couple of days of not sleeping. So it really affects all the different parts of your health. I think what the stories allow you to do is to have this bridge where you're not going straight from work, emails, Facebook, news to try to sleep. It's this little quiet spot in between to rest your brain. I always think of it like a landing pot place or a nest that you can put your brain into. And it's a little protective bubble so that if you do wake up in the middle of the night, instead of going right back to, God, what do I have to do tomorrow? What's on my email list? You can, you can go, wait a minute, wait, what was in that story? We were in a bookshop or whatever it was. And you can dig right back into the nest that you don't wake up all the way. You go right back to sleep. So how do you come up with the stories, the bedtime stories for grownups? Um, I really see things everywhere I look that kind of inspire me um, to, to write about them. You know, right now we're in the snowy season, so um, our, se- new, our season three starts a week from Monday, and the first story is about a winter walk, being out in the woods and seeing the snowfall and all those kind of nice things and how good it feels to come home after a nice walk and your cheeks are red and 
ditch the snowy clothes and feel warm in your house. And, you know, it's really just about the simplest things. I find them everywhere. People keep asking me if I'm worried I'm going to run out of things to write about. But so far, it seems like a deep well. Well, I can tell you, it doesn't matter. You can just repeat like nine sentences <laughs> over, over and over again because they never I get more than about two minutes into your stories and, uh, and I, I'm fast asleep. I often think to myself when I'm writing and I'm doing it very intentionally and maybe I'm starting to analyze, you know, do I mean this word? Do I want to say it this way? You know, I kind of remind myself, hey, sister, nobody's going to hear this. <laughs> like, relax. <laughs> so that does take the pressure off as a writer, I have to say. What a bizarre job. I mean, to actually have that, that thing where you're like, yeah, no one's even going to hear this by this That's, point in the story. It doesn't even matter. It's the most yeah. enviable job in broadcasting, writing something for nobody to hear it. I, I love it. Right? It, yeah, it's yep. it's it's really magical, Catherine. Thank thanks you. so much for creating this. It, it yeah. has literally changed my life over the last couple of weeks. So thank you for that. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah, I, I love making it. And I love sharing it with people. The only fault is now I do have to listen more to Greg because he did advise me to do this and it did work. And so now I feel like I'm really going to have to take him seriously from now on. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Catherine Nikolai is the host of Nothing Much Happens Bedtime Stories for Grown Ups. The website where you can subscribe to the podcast is nothingmuchhappens.com. Thanks again, Catherine. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. 945 on 680 CJOB. I've also linked her Instagram account to our 680 CJOB Instagram story where you can follow her on social media and subscribe through there as well. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.